Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly biotechnology podcast that's not just about biotechnology. Providing information to help you change hearts and minds. Moving innovations to application with communication. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology and new innovations that can help people and the planet. I'm Paul Vincelli, sitting in for Dr. Kevin Falta. Once again, Kevin, thanks for the chance to, to do Talking Biotech. And today we're going to be talking about gene drives. And our guest today is Dr. Jennifer Kuzma. And she is, uh, well, I'll, uh, I'll t- there's a lot to tell you about her. She's got quite a distinguished uh, career. She, is, she holds a, name, a named professorship which is the Goodnight North Carolina GlaxoSmithKline Foundation Distinguished Professor in Social Sciences in the School of Public and International Affairs at, the, uh, at North Carolina State University. She's also the co-director of the Genetic Engineering and Society Center at NC State. And Jennifer, it's really a pleasure. I've read some of your work um, more as I prepared for this interview, and it's quite a pleasure to have you on the Talking Biotech podcast today. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. So. Um, you have quite a distinguished background, as I mentioned, uh, with work in science and technology policy at the University of Minnesota, study director on, for genetic engineering and bioterrorism at the National Academy of Sciences, and so on and so forth. I mean, really uh, quite an illustrious uh, set of accomplishments. Um, what got you interested in, in – how did you end up here in, in talking about uh, genetic engineering and now gene drives? Yeah, well, as I tell my students, uh, you know, career paths aren't necessarily linear. So um, I started out, you know, being very interested in the bench sciences and and, um, biochemistry in particular, Um, just really enthralled with how macro level phenomena could be partially explained, at least at the micro level. And so I decided to pursue a PhD chemistry with the urging of some of my undergraduate advisors. But as I got more and more into the lab work, it it um, was too detailed, I think, for my personality. So all the, and I was always, you know, thinking about or inserting into my presentations more about the macro and societal implications of the work I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so after a, a brief postdoc, well, actually not too brief, two years, <laughs> um, in plant molecular biology, I decided to look into alternative careers and found science policy, which I don't think many undergraduates or even graduate students are aware that it, it, it's its own kind of discipline or area, if you will, um, of, of inquiry. Um, and so the way I got into that was through a AAAS fellowship, which is a way a lot of scientists and engineers get into policy. Mm -hmm. um, the idea in that program was to put scientists and engineers into Washington, D.C., um, and kind of baptism by fire in a way. Hmm. Um, and there I ended up at the Department of Agriculture in the Office of Risk Assessment and Cost-Benefit Analysis. That was incredibly interesting, um, and working on foodborne pathogens and, and safety issues related to agriculture and food. And then from there, went um, and got a more permanent position at the National Research Council, now known as the National Academies, uh, and was a study director there. And so, you know, around that same time, I wanted to move back to Minnesota, my home state, and started asking around about doing um, science policy in Minnesota. And there was a center at the University of Minnesota that the former president, Ken Keller, had uh, of the university had um, had established, and, and that just seemed like a great fit where... Um, it was its mission was to bring together natural scientists and engineers with the social sciences and humanities for general science and technology policy issues. And so I uh, worked my way into a tenure track position there um, and eventually got tenure as a social scientist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of bizarre that my PhD is in biochemistry, but yeah. my, my tenure has been in the social sciences. Mm -hmm. um, and from there, then when Fred Gould uh, started the center or this program at NC State, um, he and I brainstormed about establishing a center, and I was recruited to help him co-direct the program. So right. um, it, it's been an, an interesting transition, but it's allowed me to kind of bridge the thinking of both natural sciences and social sciences. Um, I had to self-train myself as a mm -hmm. social scientist with the help of many colleagues and collaborators and students, of course, but, um, you know, it's a process of continual learning and making that jump wasn't so difficult, um, you know, given the lines of inquiry are similar, the methods are different, and the subject matter in social sciences, I might argue, is even more complex. Mm -hmm. um, but, but <laughs> yeah, but, but, you know, some of the, some of the, the way you structure research questions and investigate them is, is, um, is pretty pretty similar. Yeah, so. you know that that if if listeners get nothing else but but to be reminded of the importance of talking to social scientists, that that's enough. In fact, my partner is uh, is is a social scientist, and boy, is is it such a wonderful background, especially if you do any outreach or, as you're, in your case, you're doing policy. Um, you mentioned the Genetic Engineering and Society Center at NC State. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, this is uh, just a perfect home for me and, and many other people who like to, you know, make those connections and, the, and, and build those bridges um, between the social sciences and natural sciences and humanities. So we are a multi and sometimes interdisciplinary uh, program uh, established in 2014, early 2014. And we have a mission of really integrating both scientific knowledge and public values and the humanities into the study of these kind of wicked 
um, sy- system-wide uh, issues associated with genetic engineering. And, and, and we, we define genetic engineering broadly to include gene editing, synthetic biology, and, you know, modern um, biotechnology uh, methods. And mm-hmm. it's just a fabulous group of scholars and students and stakeholders. We collaborate with many in industry and government and NGOs uh, that really all have diverse perspectives and biases. We all come with our own biases. Um, some are very much um, on the technology development side and working to engineer plants, microbes, animals, um, whereas others are more critics of how we've um, governed or uh, managed the technologies. So we all come with our different biases and we try to respect biases and viewpoints that are very different from ours. Um, So we seldom speak with one voice, um, except we all really care about this translation between the disciplines and between academe and um, practice. Mm, wonderful. Yeah, it sounds like a great, great work environment. Um, yeah, so you met, somewhere in your in- introduction, you mentioned Fred Gould, who between the two of you are both, you're both co-directors of the center, am I right? Yes, correct. Yeah. yeah. So um, Fred went into de- depth in, in part one of this two-part um, series that we were recording on on um, gene drives and and so it gave you know some detail about what they what they are but um so but just as a reminder in case some listeners have not heard part one fred's part what how would you describe a gene drive yeah well some of the foundations of gene drives relies on gene editing and the Retention. So if you put the gene editing machinery in, often what plant biotechnologists are doing now is once it makes the edit, you take it out. Mm-hmm. Um, or you leave it in and it sort of goes, um, goes unnoticed, if you will, by the plant. Um, it might make off-target edits, but it's, it's not um, there to continue to, to put itself into the population. Mm-hmm. With gene drives, it relies on that kind of foundational gene editing, but with every generation, it increases the prevalence of the gene in that species or in that population. And so it, it's, you know, the, the name is pretty descriptive in the mm-hmm. sense that you're trying to drive that gene through a population, whether it be in a laboratory environment, like a, a field uh, uh, or a cage study or a laboratory study, or whether it be um, out in the field um, with field testing. And so gene drives can either be designed to be um, uh, sustaining throughout a population in the environment. Now, I'm not sure if we're able to achieve that in practice because none have been released in the environment yet. Um, Or they're designed to be more limiting um, and to come to some sort of steady state and not spread. And a lot, some of that, you know, the technicalities of, of, um, you know, how you can engineer one or the other. I mean, that's really Fred's domain. He's been a pioneer in kind of the modeling, the population genetics modeling um, of, of gene drives with others as well. Um, and, and so it's, it's a complicated kind of um, biological machinery that with every um, generation, it'll, the, the gene that you're wanting to drive through the population will insert itself into the other chromosome and try to achieve, you know, 100% inheritance, unless you design it to be more self-limiting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 
to me, what's a bit different about this than than previous generations of and and um, generations of technology um, of genetic engineering or genetic modification is that these would be designed to spread um, in ecosystems, or to, the gene would be designed to spread through populations. Um, whereas most of our governance strategies and our risk management strategies for field testing of GMOs are really meant to contain. Um, for example, we don't want, you know, crops to cross-pollinate with um, the wild relatives or neighboring fields where the genetically engineered variety isn't grown. Or we don't want animals, you know, that are produced in the laboratory and maybe for even on farm to necessarily get into related wild populations. Um, and so, in contrast, gene drives are really intended to spread. And I think that's the crux of a lot of the risk management and regulatory issues yeah, that, that we will face. That's a great way to think about it because, you know, I wanted to make this point that, that gene, gene drives are not, say, genetically modified or genetically engineered crops. These are modified, genetically engineered could be weeds or invasive plants or mosquitoes that transmit malaria um, to, and, and they're mo being modified in a way, genetically modified and engineered to, um, to spread, as you say. So that's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so you probably wouldn't, I wouldn't think do this in corn or, you know, a traditionally genetically engineered crop, but exactly what you said, you'd want to do it more in insects or things that do spread throughout um, populations. So, so you've written um, rather extensively on on these policy issues, and and, and a recent paper I read was um, was your work out of um, the, in the Journal of Responsible Innovation. Oh, great! Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we're going to have um, the link to that that whole set of papers, open access wonderful. papers, wonderful on the website. Um, so governance was was I think the part that you bring to the table, um, you know that that really fits following Fred's discussion. So. You know, I, I I don't even know where to begin. What do you What do you think? Um, what What do we need to know about governance? Let's today's yeah. talk is really about that. So. Well, first, you know, I think it helps to to um, shed some light on my definition of governance, and okay. it, it's one that comes from mainly the policy um, and management literature that governance is is really broadly speaking you know watchful and responsible care by all of society and all different sectors of society so governance does not just include regulations um, which we think of of having the force of law or statute but it could include voluntary programs uh, such as data sharing or monitoring um, or corporate um, responsibility programs to monitor the impacts of their products, or could it, it could be on the consumer side and, and consumer watchdogs and, and being really watchful for impacts out there in the marketplace or in the environment. Um, it could be citizen, you know, just just making informed decisions about which products they choose to really embrace or reject. So that so governance I see as kind of the broadest category. Um, whereas regulation is a subset of that. Okay. And so, and then oversight kind of, I kind of, I, I'm not going to use that term too much, but that to me is somewhere in between um, 
and and includes regulation, but may also include more formalized programs like when uh, government agencies encourage companies to share data or developing monitoring programs or research um, protocols, that kind of thing. Yeah. So governance, uh, I like this definition. I wrote it down. I'm going to save it somewhere. But uh, watchful and responsible care by all sectors of society. Yeah, yeah. And and so that's what's allowed me and my work um, to really think of it as more of a system and and to think about the ways the parts of the system interact, um, which are very complex and lots of feedback loops in governance systems. And, and one of the keys in, in, you know, there's a lot of key elements in governance systems, but often the linkages come with communication and um, dialogue between these different parts of, of governance systems. So, and, and here's where it gets complex. Um, gene drives are designed to spread. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you pointed out, none have been released into the environment uh, at, uh, as of yet, but they're designed to spread in the environment that they're released in. And, um, and, and so that, so now you get into the possibility of spread over political boundaries or geographic boundaries. I know you've written about this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. where I think it's, it gets even more complex. The first, the first area of it, it, of complexity is looking just on the ground. And when you deploy a, a gene drive, you know, who do you need to inform? Who do you need to engage Whose permission do you need to have? Is it just government permission or is it the permission of people who are going to be exposed to the organism that has the gene drive? I mean, there may not be health or, you know, direct health effects of that organism, but still there are some ethicists and other people who make arguments that it is, it is up to the researcher to get the consent of people who actually are living in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's debatable. Um, I, I tend to favor that approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one complexity is, is not only do you need government permission, but who's on the ground permissions do you need? And then if you move up to the, you know, more state and national regulation, you know, what what where do these organisms fall as a category as you may know you know the u.s relies on um older laws to govern by or to regulate biotechnology the coordinated framework for the regulation of biotechnology was developed in 1986 and its premise was you know no new laws are needed because there are no new categories of risk for genetically engineered organisms and so gene drives would likely come under that coordinated framework which relies on older statutes pre-1986 in some ways, although they've been amended in various forms, but essentially it relies on things like the Pesticide Act or the animal drug um, laws mm-hmm. or um, the ke- uh, chemicals, toxic chemicals. So it's relying on these older statutes to fit a new product in. And so that's the second kind of degree of complexity and then moving either and further out is what you mentioned is um, not only what national laws would um, apply, but what international, international governance regimes would apply. And there are various kind of UN um, conventions that many countries are party to, but you know the United States is not a party to one key one, which is the Convention on Biological Diversity and the Cartagena Protocol um, under that. And so how are our country's going to notify 
if you are a party to that convention, living modified organisms, if they are to cross country boundaries, you would need to notify the neighboring country. And so whose permission then do you need of your neighboring countries or, you know, potentially globally, if these things really do spread across, you know, oceans or um, bodies of water, not just neighboring countries, but, and that I'm not sure, you know, if we'll ever get to that because I'm, I'm not convinced we'll get gene drives to work in the wild. Okay. Yeah, but in other if, words, they will, they will, they might die, just die out. We really, yeah, them. yeah. I mean, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows. Sure. Um, that's a possibility. There's always know. a fitness cost to genes you put in. Sometimes there's a fitness advantage. In this case, you know, it's designed to spread, but there could be some other fitness costs, or maybe there's not random mating of populations across bodies of water. A more precautious stance would be that you would want to notify neighbors anyway. And have their um, consent. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of degrees of complexity to this mm-hmm. at local, very local, you know, national, regional, and international levels. Yeah. So, so yeah, so what in, in, a, in a worst case situation, I mean, all these, all these questions and considerations are valid. And every one of them, and one would want the the buy-in of of uh, the people in the area where the gene drive is going to be released. One would want appropriate laws, uh, you know, and and an agreement with international neighbors. But how? I guess I'm wondering how much dis- dissension is 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 a tolerable while still going forward or should, you know, I, yeah. you know what I'm saying? I'm not sure I'm asking this. No, I think that's, I think that's a good um, question. Um, not only will you have kind of political uh, disagreement um, about, you know, just sovereignty and the rights of individual countries to kind of make their own destiny with technology. Right. But I think you'll also have, cultural considerations um, about how different countries value different species. Um, An invasive species in one country might be a desirable species in another. Um, So there are a lot of complexities there. And then you also have kind of health and environmental impacts, whether positive or negative, and how they might differentially affect different geographic um, areas. So I think, you know, you're always going to have some dissension, and I don't think you can, you know, reduce it to zero by any means. But I do think that there are opportunities to be more inclusive in regional conversations. And the U.S. has traditionally, just in any area, not just... Uh, genetic engineering, but has had somewhat of a go-it-alone mentality when it comes to these things, you know, whether it be climate change or genetic engineering, biodiversity. And so how far are you going to want to take that? And I think there's a long way to go on the more cooperative models of governance. So yeah, I I agree that, you know, you're always going to have some dissension, but there's a long way to go to minimizing that, I think, with how you approach this. I'm sympathetic to the issue of transgene flow in, um, you know, heritage varieties of corn, for example, in uh-huh. Mexico. So, yes, absolutely. You know, which is not, you know, self-propagating and designed right, to spread right. like a gene drive, but still, you know, the, those the people that 
cherish those ancient varieties. Yes. Don't want transgenes in them. Yeah. And as an aside, we took some students down to Mexico, I think it was like three years ago, I don't know if Fred talked about this, to study the issue of of maize varieties in Mexico Mm -hmm. and their importance, um, their cultural importance to um, indigenous um, populations, um, small farmers in Mexico, and, um, you know, the cultural and the you know, the economic um, importance of those different varieties. The people like their varieties that they've been growing for hundreds yeah. of years. Yeah. And um, contamination there is seen as a risk in and of itself. I mean, often in, a, in the U.S. we talk about gene flow isn't, you know, a risk. It, it, it's what the consequences of gene flow are. But in some cultures, the gene flow is a contamination because it was perfect as it was in, in their than the view of their culture. So, um, yeah, so, so absolutely. Plus it's just an origin of biodiversity or site of biodiversity. Um, and you would want to preserve that variety, um, for the future, just for very practical reasons as well. Yeah. Good. Well, listen, let's take a short break. We're talking to, we're talking to Dr. Jennifer Kuzma from the Genetic Engineering and Society Center at North Carolina State University. And uh, when we come back, we're going to continue our talk about gene drives. And so thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Hello, Talking Biotech listeners. My name is Nick Syke. And I wanted to take just a quick moment to tell you about No Ideas Media. That's no with a K and a W. It's a media company I've recently started, and its express purpose is to have pragmatic conversations about divisive topics. And I'm willing to bet that since you're here listening to a biotechnology podcast right now, you'd probably agree that a pragmatic conversation about this topic could benefit a lot of people, especially when we're talking about biotechnology in food, the dreaded GMO. This is the first topic I wanted No Ideas Media to focus on, and I wanted to learn it pretty well. So I traveled like all over the place, Hawaii to Uganda. I interviewed Ashwaka experts, including this pretty awesome guy you might have heard of named Kevin Volta. I'm making videos with all these interviews, and I'd love you to check them out. You can find them by searching No Ideas Media on YouTube or Facebook. Remember, that's no as in knowledge. Every week you'll find a new video featuring some exciting expert or topic to do with genetically engineered food. And the videos are perfect for people who aren't super familiar with the science. So I would really encourage you to share them, especially with people you know who need to take a look at this scary topic of GMO a little more pragmatically. Also, if you want to get in on a surprisingly constructive conversation about this topic and maybe even contribute to changing a few minds, follow No Ideas Media on Facebook and get in on the conversations there. It also really helps us if you subscribe to the No Ideas Media YouTube channel. Plus, that way you'll always know when there's something new and exciting to watch and share. And I mean, let's face it, we all want to be in the know, right? That's why you're listening to this podcast, after all, which I think I'll let you get back to about now. Thanks a lot. And we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast with Dr. Jennifer Kuzma from the Genetic Engineering and Society Center at North Carolina State University. Jennifer, welcome back, and thanks for being here. Thank you. So, um, yeah, there's so many interesting things we, we started to uncover in our in, during the break. Um, so you have written about ethical issues with respect to gene drives and, and particularly have 
thoughts about sort of the intergenerational aspects of the use of gene drives. Why don't you Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. So, I in a recent um, paper, I went through different applications of gene drives and kind of thought about what are the risks or the benefits to future generations um, from the use of different types of gene drives. So whether you're using it in, um, in uh, health areas, for example, to drive down populations of mosquitoes, to hopefully prevent transmission of, of Zika or dengue viruses, um, versus where you might be putting a gene drive into an endangered species to immunize it against um, disease that are spreading. Um, and I thought about, you know, what what obligations do we have to protect the future um, of the planet for subsequent generations? Um, and it's, you know, intergenerational ethics or equity is is sort of the framing of that. And I kind of surprised myself in thinking about, you know, when do you have a moral kind of imperative to use gene drives under conditions of high uncertainty? I mean, there's always going to be a significant amount of uncertainty to deploying a gene drive. And that's something we have to grapple with. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when might people want to accept that level of uncertainty in order to protect the world. And, and, you know, for health purposes, I, although they're very important, and I think, um, uh, you know, there could be uses of gene drives there, um, you'll generally have other alternatives you might be able to think of that are reasonable or logistically possible, such as putting the money into vaccination, for example, um, or vaccine research. Um, but for the protection of endangered species, there may sometimes be no other good alternative. Um, and so I kind of came down in the final kind of paragraphs of that paper to arguing that that might be one category of applications of gene drives where there would be ethical imperatives to protect that species for the future use or enjoyment of um, subsequent um, generations. So yeah. it's kind of interesting um, in that my thinking on this sort of evolved mm-hmm. um, as I was writing the article. And, and many people, you know, uh, make the argument of the moral imperative to use it for disease transmission. But I actually came down more along the side of a, a moral imperative to use it for um, species conservation. Because it could be, species could be lost forever. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And there are no other you know, reasonable alternatives. Like you can't control the danger to the species necessarily, um, but you can immunize the species against it. So kind of thinking about, you know, that's the point where we might be able to preserve um, the species going forward. Yeah. yeah, I think it's, I think you have a a good, you know, a good case there and a good analysis. In fact, I want to, I'll send you an email to request that paper. It, sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I want to read it. Um, so I, I remember an experience. I still remember. I was probably 23, 24 years old. I was in the Peace Corps in Colombia. And um, I was talking to a Peace Corps volunteer who had recovered, you know, quite many months before from malaria. Mm. And, mm. and I looked in his eyes and I could tell. I mean, I could see the suffering in his eyes. Mm. Okay. Mm. So mm-hmm. I, I think of that, you know, and I think, geez, you know, how do we – how do we not use? <laughs> I mean, maybe this is my bias here. I, right. I, I don't want to. I don't want to duck my head and run forward without blindly. I, I. I really don't. I think. I think a point that you and I would 
probably share is that I believe our role as scientists is, is to do the scientific part and not think mm-hmm. that we make decisions for society. But I also, um, you know, I guess I have some experience with the sense of the suffering that people experience. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so what do you, how does that, how does that uh, work with your, you know, what, what did your ethical analysis lead you to think about that? Well, again, I mean, I, I do think that, those applications of gene drives could be important. But as you noted, you know, being a scientist, I think um, often in policy conversations, um, you know, at the national level, uh, scientists are, are, natural scientists are given kind of um, preeminence, if you will, or a special status. We know the science, and so therefore, you know, we need to argue for a particular decision based on science. Whereas I would argue there's no decision that you can make that is solely based on science. And, and although our regulations are very focused on, you know, direct health and environmental risks, and, and we need to have good science to inform those decisions, it's impossible to say what you should do as a society based only on that. Right. And so, you know, in the case of health applications of gene drives, one would want to open up the circle to people who are affected by the disease, Mm -hmm. social scientists that could help think about the social and economic impacts of disease versus the social and economic impacts of deploying gene drives. Uh, And so I I just think we need to have a wider range of voices Mm -hmm. that we bring into the conversation to making decisions. Now, unfortunately, you know, the agencies, federal agencies in the U.S. especially and in some other countries say, well, we have to base our decisions on science. You know, it's science-based decision-making. And I would just change that to science-informed decision-making. Because if you think about a dose-response curve, many of your listeners will be, you know, familiar with that, where you have the concentration of something or exposure to some hazard versus the response, the negative response, like death, injury, illness. And science can help us draw that dose-response curve um, with some uncertainty, whether you try to minimize the uncertainty. I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty in drawing the curve, but at least you can help us to draw the curve. But what a safe level of that hazard is, is, is not a scientific question. It's very much a value-based question. Mm, right. And so where you draw the line is the cutoff as to what is safe and what is not yeah. is a societal question. Yeah. And so I think the same could apply to deploying a gene drive for, for, for health um, risks like dengue or zika i think you would need to really have people affected by that problem like the person you knew in colombia in order to make such a decision as well as the scientists and engineers saying that this could possibly work this could possibly help these are the health possible health risks and the health benefits you also need those wider voices as to what's acceptable from multiple kinds of perspectives yeah yeah you know I actually, I don't know how many natural scientists would feel that way, but I actually agree. And I was, as you answered, you know, and I was thinking about what you were saying, I was thinking, well, what, you know, why, why is this such a comfortable decision for me? I mean, you know, that, and and I, I think I realized why, partly because my partner is a social scientist, but Mm -hmm, partly mm -hmm. because I was, I was doing climate change outreach, global climate change, mm. outreach, and uh, very frustrating. Oh, mm. uh, learned a lot, hopefully from from that experience. But um, I, the dean was perfectly comfortable with my, my um, talking about 
um, the science of climate change, mm -hmm. but didn't, but thought it was not my job, didn't want, want me to get into anything that was policy or valued values based. Mm -hmm. And that, and the simple way that I think about that is if the word should fits there in that sense, we should fill in the blank that that's a, that's a values judgment. That's not a scientific question. So I, I, I think what you say, you know, resonates with me and I think it comes from my, my experience with, um, global climate yeah. change. Now that's not to say that natural scientists don't have a voice in value-based decisions as people, you know, with the knowledge that they have. Like you can say that climate change and, and global warming specifically is a problem that is going to impact societies, disease, um, ecosystems, and we should do something about it. I mean, that's, you know, you're your assessment of the problem as a scientist is important um, to, to the imperative to do something. Now, whether we invest in solar energy or put a fuel tax or, you know, that's not, probably not your domain, right? Okay. So, so I kind of see like, you know, I, I don't think we should be afraid to express our values. Um, and, but, I don't think any one category of experts or stakeholders or society has the right to say my values are the most important because I understand the science. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's the difference. I think, I mean, so, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dissuade scientists from expressing their values, but making sure that people know that that is their belief or that, their bias yeah. you know i often say my bias is x <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know when it comes bias, to policy yeah, and yeah, sure. policy and what we should do um yeah. like i have a bias towards wider stakeholder and public engagement for sure mm -hmm. um so yeah and maybe my biases are more on the precautious side of governance than on the promotional side mm -hmm. um and i think the problem is when we have those discussions about regulation of biotech products, whether they be gene drives or genetically engineered crops, and we don't make those biases explicit, but we embed them in what we're saying. Um, like we argue the uncertainty in a particular way, um, using our expertise as not an asset, but as a, a tool of argument or just I don't want to say deception like intentional deception mm -hmm. but through your biases you know trying to downplay that uncertainty um, or in the case of right. NGOs who are against this you know they try to upplay the uncertainty yeah. Yeah. and I think we just need to be clear about when we are making those value judgments based on our expertise versus when we're not so to be um, clear on those that when we're when we're doing those and and maybe the way we express them i i have i get you know what i'm what i'm making a note to myself here is that we should express our values but when i'm talking about us scientists express our values is your argument um sure. but, but make it as an i statement you know yeah. i you know yeah. so we, we hear the science yeah. Is, yeah. is that we you know we're increasing the risk of heat waves of of uh, uh the melting of the landed ice in greenland and antarctica these are the scientific this is our scientific understanding. I, be, I believe that we should do something. So that's an mm -hmm. I statement. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, as long, I think if we're explicit about that. Yeah, that, yeah, that no, that's, that a, that's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. So you, you mentioned that um, our, our laws and regulations on, uh, in, I think in general, and maybe you were referring in general, mm -hmm. tend to uh, place a maybe an inordinate, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but inordinate emphasis on, Science is that kind of 
what you're, how, how would you? I think sometimes, and in this particular domain, I mean, I think that, you, you know, we often um, make fun of some policymakers and um, legislators for not knowing enough science and not even thinking about the, um, the, the natural or social science and the execution of laws. But I think in this particular domain of GM crops, the people that have had the loudest voices at the national policymaking level have been the, the plant biotechnology engineers. Um, and, and so, so now in our laws and regulations, like for example, um, the new animal drug Act, which is um, being used to regulate genetically engineered animals, mm-hmm. um, in many cases, and sometimes in the cases of insects, if they have if they make a disease claim, like a genetic genetically engineered insect that has a gene drive that makes a disease claim, like the purpose of this mosquito is to you know bring down the population so that we control dengue or Zika. Um, That's going to go under the Food and Drug Administration as a new animal drug. And that's kind of a weird legal hook if you think about it. Because for the new animal drugs, so the argument that the FDA made under the coordinated framework is that the gene that you're putting in changes the physiology of the insect or the animal or mammal, um, and so therefore it acts as a drug. Now, under that act, it's pretty narrowly focused on the safety of the drug to the animal. So if you think about a gene drive for population control, that's kind of ridiculous because it's going to kill the animal ultimately, right? Some of these suicide genes or what have you. Um, And the efficacy. So then you're looking at, well, how well does it, work to prevent disease. Um, So those kind of two scientific questions, if you will, safety to the animal, I mean, that has some value-based components, but um, health risks to the animal and efficacy of it working to combat disease, that's a pretty narrow scope of risks if you think about it and doesn't really fit what we're most concerned about gene drives is more of the ecological implications. Um, So it's kind of a a mismatch, if you will, um, that particular statute. Now, some mosquitoes will go under EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, as pesticide products. Um, That's probably a better fit but um, I still think there could be some problems there as pesticide laws have been written for chemicals, things that don't typically move and reproduce. And, and so there are some kind of um, uh, weak points with that approach as well. Um, so like the Oxitec mosquito has been moved recently from FDA to EPA because the company is no longer making a disease claim. The mosquito does the same thing. FDA reviewed it said it was okay, but the local population in Florida, uh, Key Haven, voted against it, even though the county um, said yes. Um, but the product has been moved because Oxitec has removed the disease claim, and now it's being thought of as more generally to bring the mosquito population down without saying we're going to use it to prevent disease. Okay. And so, therefore, it goes to EPA now with the uh, pesticide law. Yeah. So that that's a product that has been kind of um, switched over based on the claim that you're making. Um, but in 
it's probably a better fit for EPA because they are concerned more about the environmental impacts sure. of pesticides. Yeah. Um, but I still think there might be some problems with the fact that this is a pesticide, if you will, that moves, reproduces, um, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a living thing. Yeah. So we need new laws and regulations for... Well, you know, I, I've, I've kind of come close to that, but I'm, I, I haven't advocated for it, um, you know, strongly. I think we need a better coordination mechanism between these different kinds of laws and where products fit um, and possibly a new law or a new policy, an update. Now, they did update the coordinated framework in 2016, shortly before the Obama administration left. Um, but I'm not sure what the Trump administration is doing now with those updates. And the updates that they made didn't really tackle the most controversial products that sort of fall in between agencies or the most emerging products. Um, and I argued about that in a, in a recent kind of science um, policy forum article from 2000, late 2016 about how that updating process, although it was beneficial, it really didn't go where it needed to go. Um, so, so I'm not sure that a new law is needed, but I definitely think that there's room for updating um, the coordinated framework to meet really truly emerging products that challenge these old statutes. Um, and to provide better coordinating mechanisms for um, for interagency coordination of products that might fall in between, like this mosquito. FDA could have taken it, EPA, and did take it for a while. EPA now has it, and it's sort of been bounced around. Um, and, and I was part of a National Academy of Sciences report preparing for future biotech that essentially said the same thing, that we need this better kind of entry point um, of coordination between the agencies that are responsible um, for emerging biotechnology products. It's not clear where some of these may fit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so I guess the, the one more point sort of sparked my, my thinking um, that um, somewhere, I think it was in one of your articles that you wrote about how genetically engineered crops offered a viable business business model. So, you know, I could sell seed and, and maybe sell it every year, you know, and, and, right. uh, you know, it's so, so self-sustaining um, business. Whereas gene drives, th- those that are designed to be self-sustaining wouldn't yeah. offer a viable business model. So gene drives are largely being developed or researched as far as I know, by uh, public institutions and uh, nonprofit organizations. Is, is, uh, so this is very different from the multinational, yeah. con- you know, influence of genetically engineered crops. What, what, comments do you have about that yeah I, I well i do think there's a different you know political economy to gene drives especially if they're self-sustaining as you mentioned because you're gonna your goal is to drive yourself out of business essentially yeah. you know you want to be able to release these things just a few times and take care of the problem um and so therefore you'll see groups more like the gates foundation with target malaria or other public um research organizations um, really spearheading this. And I think that they have been more open to sort of this collaborative governance model of, of a wider range of stakeholder voices in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you know, when you're talking about self-limiting uh, gene drives, um, you could still come up with a, with a business model, like Oxitec, for example, mm-hmm. um, 
with the Oxitec mosquito, it has a, um, you know, a, a, a gene that prevents the, the development of the mosquito in, in subsequent generations. So the idea is to kill them off, but you have to keep releasing large batches of them so you can keep selling the mosquitoes. Okay. So there is there are business models to gene drives that may, may work, but uh, generally I think the public sector for a self-sustaining gene drive is going to be the ones to develop this, to take care of the problem. And to me, I think that gives an opportunity for more collaborative models of governance, which is what I think this problem or this issue requires. Just for our listeners to to um, make note of, uh, w- there are, will be a link at the Talking Biotech podcast page to um, a series of open access articles written by a variety of experts, including Dr. Kuzma, um, on gene drives and varied different perspectives and aspects of it, governance, biology, ethics, and so on. So so look for that when, when the episode is available. Is, is there anything else you, you'd like to share with listeners about gene drives? Well, I think I wanted, I, I, I've been to some meetings recently. I just want to share one more thing with the, I think, the natural science community. Yeah. Um, and it's not necessarily specific to gene drives, but it's more about gene editing, synthetic biology. There have been a lot of conversation about language and how we frame what these technologies are and talking about, you know, how we need to call gene editing something else or avoid the term GMOs or instead of saying synthetic biology, say engineering biology or, you know, instead of um, saying gene editing, say new breeding technologies. And so another thing that came up kind of in my thinking and conversation about this is really the transparency issue and especially when it comes to language. And just to caution the community uh, about trying to change the language too much so that it appears as if you're trying to hide something. I mean, uh, I'm a fan of more transparency in calling it what it is, explaining it so people can understand it, um, because I think that can build more trust than trying to change the terminology to try to, it seems like you're trying to hide something where, you know, if these products have benefits and some of them will you know call it what it is and let's try to talk to people about what it is and help them make informed decisions um so that's something that's been kind of bothering me a little bit recently is this this um struggle over what to call things in language and i think it's complicated and of course you don't want to use inflammatory language either you know um you don't want to call them like killer gene drives i'm sure but but at the same by the same token trying to create euphemisms for what things are Mm -hmm. is not going to necessarily work either yeah, it's not it's not transparent. And trust is really the most important thing in in public perception of emerging technologies and a lot of the social science literature says that you know trust is really key and trust has to be earned and I just yeah. think that um you know we could go further as kind of a technology savvy community and I include myself in that as well of of um of really building that trust. Yeah. Really, uh, yeah, I'll I'll um, I'll second that your your point about tr- uh, language and framing 
to this base, you know, to, to promote transparency. And, I, and I'll tell you specifically where my, in my own journey on this topic, I, I, I do a lot of outreach on genetic engineering mm-hmm. now. And, and, uh, and, and in my own journey, I, I, I kind of went through some of these things. And one of them was, uh, you know, the question of should we label, right? So everybody's yeah. got to make a decision. Should we label that as products derived from genetic engineering as such? And um, I, I always, you know, it, it took me a while to come to this, but I came to the decision that, and I always say this to audiences, I believe they should be labeled genetically mm-hmm. engineered crops and their, and their products, not because there is a scientific reason to, but uh, there are social reasons to. Yeah. I want everybody in this room to feel safe, you know, to feel confident in their food supply. Yeah, so I'm I'm with you on that. Yeah, too. and you know it's a shame because they've had this opportunity to do that with the non-browning apple or the the slower browning apple, yeah. the Arctic yeah. apple. Really, you know, a product that has a consumer benefit to it, and for some reason, still not labeled. You know, as such. I mean, this is an opportunity to say, you know, this was produced using genetic modification or genetic engineering. I'm not sure which. You know is most accurate. I kind of waver between the two mm-hmm. in that case because, you know, you're using more anti-sense technology, I guess, um, from my understanding mm-hmm. of it. But it would have been a good opportunity to say this was produced by genetic modification that, you know, because it has a direct consumer benefit and people yeah. can then make that choice to accept that in order to achieve the benefit or not. Right. So, so that's where I come down to is more for ethical and societal reasons to label. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm, well. glad you, I'm glad you brought that in that topic. And so, so uh, once again, uh, Dr. Jennifer Kuzma is co-director of the G- genetic engineering and society center at the North Carolina state university. Thanks for being our guest today and sharing your wisdom and your insights. And uh, really been a, it's been a pleasure to have you. Likewise. Thank you. And thank you listeners for listening to the talking biotech podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Talking Biotech, write a review on iTunes, and tell a friend to listen, as your support allows us to deliver more about exciting science to more people. I'm Paul Buccelli, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.